This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Historia Ecclesia. Today, Daryl G. Hart continues his teaching series on J. Gresham Machen with a lesson titled, The Fight Against Tyranny. This lesson was taught at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. For more information about the church, please visit calvaryopcglenside.org. And to visit Daryl Hart online, please visit oldlife.org. Good morning. Excuse me. Um, We are at week seven in this uh, series on Machen as the the fighter of the good fight. And um, just to to, uh, highlight a little bit if there where we've where we've been so far. uh, we talked about 1919 and Machen's involvement in World War I and the crisis of Western civilization in 1920 uh, and the union efforts that were pervasive in the Presbyterian Church and American Protestantism more generally. <clears throat> 1923, keeping this chronology going, we looked at Christianity and liberalism and Machen's Objections to Liberalism, um, 1925, where we were uh, last week, we looked at the, um, oh, the, the debates over, the way the debates over liberalism played out in the church, uh, and especially the special, special commission of, uh, of 1925, and the possibility of a split in the church, an exodus of liberals from the church, from the Presbyterian Church into their own whatever they might do, uh, and, the, and the intervention of Machen's colleague at Princeton Seminary, Charles Urban, at the, at the General Assembly of 1925, acting as moderator to, to appoint this special commission and um, avoid a split in the church. Um, so today, uh, I want to talk about um, the fight against tyranny and a word of warning is, is necessary here. I'm going to talk about subjects that are not fitting for the Lord's Day. Uh, that is, I'm going to talk about politics. Um, and I do apologize for that. I don't mean to say that. Take that lightly. I, I, I don't think politics is a fitting subject for um, the Lord's Day. Um, but this is a, a part, there's a theological point attached to this, and please don't read ahead too much these juicy quotations I've given you from, from uh, Machen, but um, <clears throat> but it's, it's an important part of his life, as I hope to explain, and also important part, uh, his, his teaching on the spirituality of the church is an important part of um, the OPC's history and identity, um, even though it's not always clear that the OPC talks about this, uh, but it's, it's very much part of uh, the fabric of the OPC's past and um, an ongoing witness, I would argue. So we need to remember then, keeping in mind the special commission of t- t- 1925 uh, last week, where this commission was <clears throat> appointed to study the problems in the Presbyterian Church, and they came back with a report in 1926 and 1927 and basically said, it's all good. Church is just all good. 
um, and they blamed conservatives like Machen for the problems in the church. Um, so um, we need to keep in mind, too, that the church was debating whether or not doctrines like the virgin birth were essential and necessary for the church. We weren't, we're not talking about obscure doctrines, superlapsarianism, or the intermediate state, or even we're not talking about union with Christ. We're talking about the virgin birth as one, whether it's a necessary and essential article of faith, and the special commission said um, that it was okay f- in the church if presbyteries and synods like those in New York would not um, require the virgin birth from ministers to, to be affirmed and taught by ministers in the church. So, <clears throat> this eventually then, because Erdman was the moderator of the General Assembly that appointed this special commission, and going back to 1920 when there were debates about the plan for organic union, J. Ross Stevenson, the president of Princeton, uh, was, was responsible for bringing that report to the General Assembly. Um, eventually, these difficulties in the church would spill over to Princeton Seminary. And so um, we turn then to <clears throat> this, this, this subject of the Princeton put-down. Um, 1926 was the assembly where the Special Commission was um, making the first part of its report. At that same assembly in 1926, Machen was up for nomination uh, to be promoted to the professor of apologetics and ethics at, <clears throat> at Princeton Seminary. Now, why would Machen be appointed the professor of apologetics and ethics? Well, apologetics was fairly obvious. Machen had defended the, the, the reliability and historicity of the New Testament throughout most of his career. So, it, And with books like The Origin of Paul's Religion and Christianity and Liberalism, it made sense that Machen was this defender of the faith and so that he would teach apologetics if, when, when an opening came along. And it would have been a full professor, so it would have been a promotion. Then why would he teach ethics? Well, apologetics and ethics in the Princeton-Westminster tradition always go along. Whoever teaches apologetics also teaches ethics. It's just sort of the way it, way it works. Um, and why would the General Assembly have to, uh, to weigh in on this? Well, Princeton Seminary to this day is an agency of the General Assembly of the PCUSA. So the Standing Committee on Theological Education receives all the, all the reports on, uh, from Princeton Seminary. It's sort of the board above the board. And so for Machen's nomination to go through, it would have had to have been, had to have been approved by the General Assembly. Now, J- Machen's nomination was refused. Um, there, were, there, were te- there were reports to the Committee on Theological Education at the, at the 1926 General Assembly that questioned Machen's character. Um, they thought that he was temperamentally deficient. Um, so, and that was part of, part, uh, partly because Machen and Erdman had disagreed about some matters at Princeton Seminary. And Erdman seemed to have this idea that if somebody disagrees with him, they must be temperamentally deficient. It wouldn't be a question of whether what something's right or wrong and we can talk have an intellectual difference. No, the person's temperamentally got a problem seems like a weird, strange way to go necessarily when you have a disagreement. Um, so that was, that was part of the, the testimony against Machen at the 1926 General Assembly. But even worse than Machen's temperament was uh, a vote that he made at the, at the spring meeting of the Presbytery of New Brunswick in 1926, about a month or so before the General Assembly. 
There was yet another motion to support prohibition, the, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. Um, these, these, these motions were before the Presbyteries and the General Assembly all the time. Why the law of the land needed to, be, needed to keep being um, reaffirmed by the church is, is beyond me, because this was the law of the land. It's, it's really quite remarkable to me to think that the United States actually went through the whole uh, procedure of amending the Constitution for, for in, the 18, in the form of the 18th Amendment to, to abolish the sale and distribution of alcohol, that there was that kind of consensus and that kind of willingness to go through an amendment to the Constitution on that matter. So that's the climate in which <clears throat> the church was operating at the time, and so the church kept reaffirming prohibition and uh, the Volstead Act. Machen at this uh, Presbyterian meeting in 1926 voted no. It was a voice vote. There's, there's actually evidence to suggest that this was, this was brought in at the last minute when there were very few commissioners left at, at the Presbytery as a way of baiting Machen um, to show how bad he was, that he wouldn't support prohibition and uh, the Volstead Act. Um, he didn't have, ask to have his vote recorded. He just said no. There were, I, one, one fellow who's working on this now thinks there were maybe only eight or so commissioners left at the time. So anyway, this was used as evidence, not just against Matron's temperament, but against his character. And how could anyone possibly teach ethics who would not support prohibition? That was the logic. And, that, and, and, and Machen's friends at the, at the General Assembly of 1926 said to him that the assembly was so rabidly prohibitionist, that was, that was the phrase that one of them used, rabidly prohibitionist, that there was no way that his nomination could have gone forward given the fact that he had voted no, which many people also made other people know that he had voted no. So um, this leads us then to Machen's politics. Why would he not support prohibition and, um, and the Volstead Act? And it's important to keep in mind throughout all this that I'm only talking about politics. I don't necessarily think that Machen had a theology that made him come out to be the kind of have the kind of politics that he had, which was he was a Democrat, he believed in states' rights, he was a libertarian, but I don't. He was very clear in saying this is not Christian politics, this is American politics, and we're talking about the state here, not about the church. So I have some examples of he he was a constant letter writer to all sorts of publications, the New York Times, the New Republic, all sorts of publications where he would weigh in on the political issues of the day. Um, I don't have one example here, but in 1931, at the time of a very busy uh, point in his life, Westminster Seminary is just up and running. He's living in the Chancellor Building on um, very close to 13th and, and Chestnut Street downtown. The seminary, Westminster Seminary at the time, is at 1528 Pine Street. So he's living maybe four blocks away. And he liked to jaywalk on the way to, he would just cross in the middle of the street. He detested the, the, the cities of the West where people would stand at intersections and wait for lights to turn. He thought that was like treating people like they were robots, that they would sort of be on these. And it, it was giving, giving um, drivers this, this sort of carte blanche that, of course, the cities were designed for cars and pedestrians should, by all means, get out of the way. So Machen really detested jaywalking laws, testified before the city council in Philadelphia in 1931, during his very hectic schedule against jaywalking laws. 
and he would walk to work and cross in the middle of the street when he, when he could, and he was reading like some classical literature, one of the Loeb's pocket classics. Um, so, you know, this was, this was the kind of man Machen, Machen was. So we have this one example here of fingerprinting. Uh, 1933, letter to one of, uh, I can't remember which publication, I am not objecting to voluntary print, print, fingerprinting for the purposes of identification that is available to everyone at the present time. What I am objecting to is compulsory fingerprinting by government officials. People seem to assume that there is no harm in forcing people to do things which are thought to be for their own benefit. That is just where the difference of opinion comes in. To force people to do things under the plea that it is for their own benefit is paternalism. And paternalism ought to be hated with a perfect hatred by every real American. Such paternalism is gradually tightening its grip on the American people. And he hadn't seen yet Bush or Obama. Bush was a big government guy too, let's, let's keep that in mind. At every individual step in this direction, all sorts of plausible arguments are advanced. Is this, is not this or that beneficial, we are asked. What harm can there be in having government do it and enforcing everyone to submit to that which is for his own good? Thus, the whole of life is gradually being placed under bureaucratic control. And he comes in with this zinger. The proposed measure, together with all similar bureaucratic measures, is being ad advocated as though in the interest of the real stability of the state. Will it not limit, uh, excuse me, will it not... I can't read that. Knit, thank you. The people together. Will it not ensure an orderly life? As a matter of fact, experience shows that in the long run it will have exactly the opposite effect, as it has, for example, in Germany. 1933, Germany, Hitler, Nazism. A nation that is the more stable, the looser its control is over individual lives. The reason is that the life of any country depends ultimately upon the moral quality of its individual citizens, Bureaucracy, with its narrowing of the area of individual choice, destroys moral fiber. It is liberty, which is really stable in the long run. Now, that's a questionable political point, it seems to me. But it's an I mean, it's very much at the heart of Machen's politics. He hated liberal. He hated paternalism, the idea of a big state and the big state doing good things to make people good and to make society good. Um, it's not that he believed people were good on their own. He just believed people would have to, if they had to suffer the consequences for their own actions, they might actually think better about what were the right actions to take. And, but he also really de despised bureaucracy um, and believed that nations were more stable if they had more liberty, um, which is, again, sort of counterintuitive. Another, another uh, point about which he wrote uh, was prayer and Bible reading in public schools. He was opposed to prayer and Bible reading in public schools. I won't read all of this in the interest of time. Um, and, uh, but I would um, uh, look at point six here in particular, uh, which is really the heart of Machen's objections to using religion in public life more generally, but especially in public schools. The reading of selected passages from the Bible in which Jews and Catholics and Protestants and others can presumably agree should not be encouraged and still less should be required by law. The real character of the Bible is redemption and to create the impression that other things in the Bible contain any hope for humanity apart from that which is, from that is to contradict the Bible at its root. So teaching 
boys and girls to say a prayer, the Lord's Prayer or something, if they weren't Christians, was actually helping them to think about being Christian without even being Christian. So it was just, it was just a silly proposition to have religion used in public, in public life this way. Uh, Machen wrote against the child labor amendment. amendment. Um, so he says the amendment masquerades sometimes under the guise of humanitarianism. People have the utterly erroneous notion that it deals with gainful employment of children or that it is directed against sweatshop conditions or the like. As a matter of fact, the amendment provides that the Congress, he's quoting, shall have power to limit, regulate, and prohibit the labor of persons under 18 years of age. It provides for the control of labor in the home just as much as labor in the factories or workshops. It gives full power to prohibit such labor altogether as well as to regulate it. It is evident that that measure is more than an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Practically, it destroys the Constitution for it takes the formative and most important part of human life away from the state and places it under the central government. The states, by this measure, are practically wiped out. The whole American idea of government is destroyed. And that American idea of government is federalism. The states have their own integrity and power, and they come together and create this federal union, and the federal government is limited by the Constitution. Its powers are delegated by the Constitution. It can only do so much, but the states come first, and the states are the ones who determine a whole host of things and because of that, the states, there will be variety in the United States because each state will have its own character and own laws. That's the ideal. That was the ideal that Machen thought, as many anti-federalists did back at the time of the debates about the Constitution. So that's a strain of politics in which um, Machen stands. This, is, this matter about blue laws is interesting because this is an excerpt from a letter that Machen wrote to the, to the governor of Pennsylvania in 1933 when this was about the time that the NFL was getting going, and there were, t- there were plans to start to introduce uh, NFL games on Sundays, and they would have had to change the blue laws to enable the NFL to play on Sundays. Interesting to think that there was a time when games could not be played on Sundays. I'm not sure how that worked for the major leagues. Uh, but So Machen is writing then to, to Governor Pinchot. It is clear that... In this matter of Sunday legislation, the liberty of part of the people will have to be curtailed. It is impossible that people who desire a quiet Sunday should have a quiet Sunday, while at the same time people who desire commercialized sport on Sunday should have commercialized sport. The permission of commercialized sport will necessarily change the character of the day for all the people and not merely for part of the people. So Machen's recognizing there's a diversity of views and somebody is going to suffer from this legislation. Um, or, or retaining it or, or, or uh, vetoing it. The only question, therefore, is whose liberty is to be curtailed. I am convinced that in this case it ought for the welfare of the whole people to be the liberty, liberty of those who desire commercialized sport. The curtailment of their liberty through the existing law does not, I am convinced, go beyond reasonable bounds. There is, it seems to me, a sharp distinction of principle between complete prohibition of some form of activity or enjoyment and reasonable regulation of it in the interest of other people. To ask that commercialized sport should dispense with one day out of seven for the benefit of that large part of our population that desires a quiet Sunday, and America was overwhelmingly Sabbatarian at the time, 
and believes <clears throat> that it is necessary to the welfare of the state does not seem to me to be unreasonable. Of course, it is perfectly clear that in a democracy, the majority should rule in this matter as in other matters. I should be the last to advocate any attempt to make people religious or even to make people ordinarily moral or decent against their will by, merely, by mere legislative enactment. So, again, Machen is, is trying to avoid paternalism as much as he can. I should also be the last to advocate any tyrannical imposition of the convictions of a minority upon the majority. But how shall the majority be, will be exercised? I think that it ought to be exercised through the ordinary processes of representative government. To allow commercialized sport on Sunday in Pennsylvania will be a ra radical change in the whole life of our people. It is a a wise provision of representative government that such radical changes should not be hastily accomplished as might be the case by the referendum vote, but that they should be accomplished only when it is quite clear that the majority of the people really and seriously and permanently desire <clears throat> that change. So Machen's arguing, instead of having some referendum where you just put it on the ballot of whether to have this law or not, that it should be debated over the course of time and allowed to simmer until there is an, a clear consensus on the part of the people and, and, and those who may appoint to the state legislature what that will or consensus is, not through just an up and down vote on one particular measure. Then he goes on, as to the merits of the question, I could hardly find words strong enough to express what my feeling is. It does seem to me that the profoundest dangers to our entire civilization are found in the constant rush of noise and jazz and feverish activity, which is one of the great faults of the American people and which is a great barrier to true efficiency as well as to the cultivation of the deeper things. Of course, my own cultivation of a quiet Sunday is based on considerations much more fundamental than these. I am a Christian, and it is quite clear that a commercialized Sunday is inimical to the Christian religion. Let's hear that again. It is quite clear that a commercialized Sunday is inimical to the Christian religion. I'll just let it stand there. There are many other Christians in Pennsylvania, and because they are Christians, they do not cease to be citizens. They have a right to be considered by their fellow citizens and by the civil authorities. But the reason why they can, with a good conscience, be enthusiastic advocates of the Christian practice in the matter of Sunday is that they regard it as a right and as the highest well for the highest well-being of the entire state. So it's interesting that Machen is trying to argue for some kind of Christian preference in, in the state laws, but he's doing so very much on the basis of uh, thinking about democracy, thinking about um, the way legislators operate very much against the kind of ballot referendum that was very common in the day, thanks to progressive movement in American politics. And he's not just coming out full barrel with his own Christian convictions, and this is what God requires, and how could you do anything because you're appointed by God, you, you magistrates, so follow God's will. He's not going there. He's trying to say something that he thinks is for the good of all people and thinks it's reasonable to regulate this. So he's talking about reason, democracy, the good of the whole, and not just um, the interests of Christians. So... Um, one more example, then, which brings us full circle to Machen's ideas about prohibition. When Machen voted against this motion at Presbytery regarding prohibition, 
he issued he he wrote up a statement which was never issued because people thought it wouldn't it it wouldn't help his case anymore. Um, so I mean, people's minds were closed, and Machen was wicked in some way for holding this view. So here's the view that he held, held about prohibition. This was never published until the, the little collection of uh, shorter selected writings that I, I put together, and I, I hope he would have, had, have approved of that. But um, in the first place, then, he writes here, no one has a greater horror of the evils of drunkenness than I or a greater detestation of any corrupt traffic which has sought to make profit out of this terrible sin. Interesting that he starts there because prohibition, of course, led to organized crime selling illegal alcohol. So as many, as many times as the government wants to do things that they think are good, it sets up all sorts of uh, incentives for people to get around it. And you create maybe things that you hadn't thought you were going to create. Uh, so Machen says it is clearly the duty of the church to combat this evil, the evil being drunkenness. And Machen himself worked with another Princeton minister to support a man who was a drunk throughout his whole life. They would provide, they, they arranged for him to be in a, in a home, family home in South Jersey. They gave money to the family to take care of this man's needs. So they were clearly interested in a man who would have been a homeless person because of his alcohol, alcoholism. And so Machen was aware of this problem and he was opposed to it, but he didn't think that, that the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act were the way to solve the problem. <clears throat> so with regards to the exact form continuing, however, in which the power of the civil government is to be used in this battle, there may be a difference of opinion, which would sort of be the case while you have two parties at least. Zeal for temperance, for example, would hardly justify an order that all drunkards should be summarily butchered. The end in that case would not justify the means. Some men hold that the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act are not a wise method of dealing with the problem of intemperance, and that indeed those measures in the effort to accomplish moral good are really causing moral harm. I am not expressing any opinion on that question now. I did not do so by my vote in the Presbytery of New Brunswick. But I do maintain that those who hold the view that I have just mentioned have a perfect right to their opinion so far as the law of our church is concerned and should not be coerced in any way by ecclesiastical authority. The church has a right to exercise discipline where authority for condemnation of an act can be found in Scripture, but it has no such right in other cases. And certainly Scripture authority cannot be found in the particular matter of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. So again, Scripture is clear about drunkenness being a sin. Scripture is not at all clear about how a federated republic would enforce... Uh, or, or, or set up laws or policies against drunkenness. That, Machen would probably argue, is left to wisdom, the light of nature, things like that, that even the confession talks about when it comes to, to, to organizing the church and, and its affairs. Moreover, the church, he goes on to say, I hold, ought to refrain from entering in its corporate capacity into the political field. Chapter 31, Article 4 of the Confession of Faith reads... As follows, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. In making of itself, moreover, in in so many... it should be so many instances, primarily an agency of law enforcement, and thus engaging in the duties of the police, 
The church, I am constrained to think, is in danger of losing sight of its proper function. Important indeed are the functions of the police and members of the church in their capacity as citizens should aid by every proper means with their power in securing the discharge of those functions. But the duty of the church in its corporate capacity is of quite a different nature. And so this, this, this notion of the corporate nature of the church being different from individual Christians is, is really quite important for understanding Machen's own views about the relationship between church and state and what the church as corporately may or may not do. And Machen's trying to make the point that corporately the church can only speak where the Bible is clear and where the church can say, thus saith the Lord. And the church cannot say, thus saith the Lord, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. Because that would then be the case for universal uh, law as well. And all nations should have the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. Um, but what individuals may do, individuals may join different parties, they may join different voluntary, voluntary uh, organizations, they may even serve in the police um, and be commissioners of police, etc. Um, and, and enforce various laws. So he's, this is a really important distinction for what the church may or may not do, what Christians may or may not do. So, um, again, I warned you that this, I'm going to talk about Machen's politics, and I'm just going to mention some of the, um, the, the, the ideas here, and if you haven't been in uh, U.S. history classes for a long time. It is important to remember when you th- try to figure out where Machen stands in uh, in in the history of American politics, there I have this first of all here on the on the outline this Jefferson versus Hamilton idea. And Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton. And unfortunately, ha- Hamilton is now on our ten dollar bill, so I guess he won. Um, but um, but they had a real deb- profound debate about what the nature of American life was going to be and how much the government was going to assist in trying to create a re- well regulated, orderly, and commercial republic. And, and Hamilton was on the side of a well-run American way, American form of government, American economy, and that the state was going to provide all sorts of incentives, canals, roads, etc., to improve the American economy. And he's much more on the side of industrial development. Jefferson was an agrarian. He believed in, in the virtues of farming. He believed in the virtues of yeoman farmers. And he thought that was really the future of the United States as well. The, the problem for Jefferson was he, this Louisiana Purchase thing, which kind of complicated and got America swept up in manifest destiny and settling the whole West. So Jefferson wasn't consistent in a lot of ways. But So there's that strain, and Machen, I think, is standing much more in the Jeffersonian strain, and Machen, you can see Machen actually write things, favorable things about Jefferson, Jefferson's politics. And the South, d- during the 19th century and into the 20th century, did kind of represent this Jeffersonian ideal, partly because of the the agrarian ideal uh, that Jefferson articulated. Another important theme for thinking about Machen's politics was progressivism. The era between, say, 1890 and 1920, 1930, when various reforms were were, um, pursued by members of both parties in the interests of sort of making America more streamlined and also making more America more democratic and egalitarian. This was a time, for instance, when women won the right to vote. This was a progressive reform. This was a time when there was the direct election of senators by the electorate. Not Senators previously had been elected 
by the state legislatures and then appointed by the states. So the progressives initiated that reform. But among the other reforms they wanted were child labor amendments to protect children. They had all sorts of labor reforms. They were also very much behind prohibition. One, because they were interested in good people and good government. Sometimes they're called the goo-goos. Um, and, but they also were very much uh, interested in busting trusts or monopolies. And they considered the beer, uh, the makers of beer, to be trusts and monopolies. And so prohibition was a way to bust those trusts. So progressivism was dominant in this era. And if you, it's just amazing to me when you look through Machen's letters, the letters that he wrote to editors, he is so anti-progressive. It's unbelievable. So you could just sort of, he's reacting entirely against progressivism. Um, and then I, I have down here, too, Southern States Rights Democrat. He was a Democrat his whole long life, um, despite living in the North, uh, primarily among Republicans. The, the, the Northern Presbyterian Church was overwhelmingly Republican, and he was a strong advocate of states' rights. And I think Machen even voted for FDR uh, in 1932, but he did so holding his nose. And I think that was, that was the turn for the Machen family. I visited Machen's niece um, Mary Gresham Machen uh, when we were in Baltimore and uh, Grace Mullen came down and we visited her together. <laughs> we visited her very, very pleasant apartment across the, camp across the street from the campus at Hopkins. Um, walked into her living room and there was a portrait, I mean a photograph portrait of Barry Goldwater. So the family by 1960s had switched over to the Republicans, <laughs> but, uh, but prior to that they would have been strong Democrats. Um, and, and FDR was, was the tipping point in, in the, uh, for the Machen family, I'm sure. Um, okay, so, so that's a little bit of where Machen stands in, in the strains of American politics. And again, I apologize for saying too much about politics on the Lord's Day. I really do, I do mean that, but it's, it's sort of important for this, this particular aspect of Machen's life. But it, it, does, it does help to make a theological point, which, which is the next one to which I'm coming, which is... Um, there, there were real theological resonances to the, the divisions in American politics, especially in the 19th century, between the Whigs and then their eventual success of the Republicans. Lincoln was in that tradition um, versus the Democrats. And the higher church groups in America, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, some old school Presbyterians, tended to, to go on the side of the Democrats and identify with them as opposed to most of the evangelicals who supported the revivals of the Second Great Awakening and the sorts of activist, social, social activism that came out of the Second Great Awakening. Um, those people tended to go in the Whig uh, Republican direction. And a lot of the reason for this had to do with the relationship between church and state and what, what do those two institutions trying to accomplish. Does the state establish a true religion? Does the state establish a true morality? Or does the church do it? Should the state be engaged in trying to establish a righteous, just society? Or should it merely be trying to sort of just penalize wicked doers and let people locally and in their own associations try to figure out what's a good and, and, and just way to live? Um, and more importantly, is the church primarily engaged in trying to, to establish a good, orderly society, or is the church's real aim about something higher, about a world to come, about another kingdom, about the city of God? So the Democrats 
because they were interested very much in limited government and didn't want a centralized state imposing a kind of moral order on the United States, um, the Democrats were opposed to those things and became, the Democrats became a place for a lot of ethnic Christians, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant, as a way to avoid this Republican evangelical ju juggernaut that was telling them what to do, especially not to drink and do all sorts of other things. Um, so there is a kind of theological divide to American politics in the 19th century that, that carries over into, into Machen. Um, and it, it informs what Machen thought about the, this doctrine, the spirituality of the church. Um, and this, this quotation I have here comes from 1933. I believe it's on the OPC's website. It's also the, the, uh, the appendix to the um, Fighting the Good Fight, that, uh, the history of the OPC, that the Committee for the Historian has put out. It's a really important essay called, and its, its title is, is The Responsibility of the Church in the New Age. And the New Age means something to us that it does, didn't mean to Machen's time. The New Age for him was a question of uh, depression. And what is the church's responsibility in the course, uh, in, in the light of this economic downturn with the Great Depression, starting in 1929 and, and following? And in some ways, it's very interesting for us to consider our own times uh, and read this essay in the light of, of our own struggles economically. But Machen gave this talk. He, as I said, he was, he was a favorite of many editors and, and conference organizers. And this talk was delivered at the American Social, Science, Social and Political Science Convention. So all these academics had gathered. They wanted to have a panel. They had a rabbi. They had a priest. They had a liberal Protestant. And they had Machen was the token fundamentalist. And so they were all to address this, top, this topic of the responsibility of the church in the New Age. Of course, they should have said synagogue for the Jews, but you know this was a Protestant America, so you could just say church, and that's fine. Um, so Machen concludes, or makes these points, um, and it's interesting to read some of this because some of this is directly from his statement about prohibition. Uh, so in, in effect, he, did, he was able to publish some of that statement so there are certain things, he says, he writes, you cannot expect from a true Christian church. And he spent about the first half of the essay actually arguing what a true Christian church looks like. And, he, and he's trying to settle a number of scores along the way right there with liberals in the church. But, so, but I won't go into that right now. In the first place, you cannot expect from the true Christian church any cooperation with non-Christian religion or with a non-Christian program of ethical culture, which is what he thought was going on in public schools with having prayer and Bible reading in public schools, for instance. Second, in the second place, you cannot expect from a true Christian church any official pronouncements upon the political or social questions of the day. And you cannot expect cooperation with the state in anything involving the use of force. Important are the functions of the police and members of the church either individually or in such special associations as they may choose to form, should aid the police in every lawful way in the exercise of those functions. But the function of the church in its corporate capacity, again that phrase, is of an entirely different kind. Its weapons against evil are spiritual, not carnal, and by becoming a political lobby through the advocacy of political measures, whether good or bad, the church is turning aside from its proper mission. Um, and I should say, too, that if you want to see an older understanding of this, this view of the spirituality of the church, the OPC has also, also recently reprinted 
Stuart Robinson's The uh, Church of God, an Essential Element of the Gospel. Uh, Robinson was an important 19th century Presbyterian in Louisville um, who was a professor in, in, in the seminary there. And, and this is kind of a biblical, theological, redemptive, historical uh, take on spirituality of the church that Robinson lays out in 1856, I believe, when that was published, or 1858. Um, so, again, Machen is tapping that, and it's interesting that the OPC, thanks to our former pastor, Craig Troxell, was very involved in getting that republished. Um, so the OPC is still, in some ways, identifying with this doctrine of the spirituality of the church, and Machen's articulating here. And then he goes to conclude that the big finish of his talk is the responsibility of the church in the new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that the world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, nay, all the length of human history is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered to us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this but that this salvation is full and free and that whosoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth may all the wonders of the starry heavens are as the dust of the street Um, it's really eloquent uh, paragraph that concludes that that and you know just think he's giving that talk that that especially that last paragraph to a body of social and political scientists. I mean this is an academic setting and he's he's saying that okay you want to know what the church should do the church should preach the gospel and that that, that this world is fleeting and there's a world to come and that's really what's what's important. So um, that's that's Machen's politics and that's kind of the theological outcome of Machen's politics. Machen was very much interested in preserving the church and the church's spirituality and keeping it away from being distracted by things that were passing or temporal in their nature, which is to say political life. So Machen's politics cost him a lot at Princeton. So we turn then finally to Princeton's politics. Um, he was regarded as being a, uh, a lone ranger, not a team player, and question, questionable because of his politics. Um, and so eventually the church, in addition to having this special commission to uh, study what was causing the controversy in the Presbyterian Church, in 1927 the General Assembly appoints a committee to investigate Princeton Seminary and why things are difficult there, as if they really couldn't figure it out. And um, over the course of this investigation, uh, Machen gives some really interesting testimony and makes some very interesting comments about Erdman and his colleagues. And he's very civil and polite, but also very, um, very uh, uh, firm in, in underscoring their differences. Um, uh, but this committee eventually recommends reorganizing Princeton Seminary so that um, it, the, the, the reorganization gives the president more power um, and also, it re- reconfigures the boards. There had been two boards at Princeton, one overseeing the finances, one overseeing the academic affairs. They merged those into one board, and in the process, the conservatives who were in the majority of the, the, the board controlling academic life and theology, the conservatives became a minority in the, in the new board. So Princeton is reorganized in such a way that it, it no longer can maintain its old school Presbyterian uh, teaching and identity. And that's what prompts Machen finally to found 
found Westminster Seminary. That, that the, uh, the, it went through two general assemblies, whether or not to reorganize the board at Princeton or re- reorganize Princeton Seminary, because there were a lot of legal battles, and Machen's brother, a very good attorney from Baltimore, wrote, wrote an opinion about the New Jersey laws governing educational institutions, and it really was a contested matter as far as whether this was a legal venture that the Presbyterian Church was engaged in. Uh, but finally, it went through in 1929. I believe in May, the, the General Assembly finally approved this reorganization. So May 1929, Princeton, Ma- Machen believes Princeton's lost. September 1929, he starts Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I mean, it's amazing to think that within four months, he could pull off starting a new seminary. Um, so, and, and here are the concluding paragraphs from the uh, talk, his convocation address at... at um, at Westminster's opening, which suggests the kind of tyranny that he was opposing in political life was also, he was also opposed to the kind of tyranny that was going on in the Presbyterian Church. He doesn't use the word tyranny at this point, but you can almost read it between the lines. And I should mention that this convocation for Westminster, uh, the campus was originally 1528 Pine Street, but the convocation was held at the Witherspoon Building, which is at, on, on uh, Walnut Street, this glorious building if you're ever downtown take a look at it it had been the 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 sabbath school and publication boards uh offices and it's incredibly ornate with all these uh symbols and and busts of figures on the building from reformed and presbyterian past but machin includes uh the the convocation address this way such is the task he's already sort of laid out what the task of westminster seminary is it is a task that needs especially to be undertaken at the present time. Fifty years ago, many colleges and universities and theological seminaries were devoted to the truth of God's word, but one by one they have drifted away, often with all sorts of professions of orthodoxy on the part of those who are responsible for the change. Until May 1929, one great theological seminary, a seminary at Princeton, resisted bravely the current of the age. But now that seminary has been made to conform to the general drift. Signers of the Auburn Affirmation, a formal document which declares that the acceptance of the virgin birth and four other basic articles of the Christian faith is non-essential, even for ministers, actually sit upon the new governing board. And they do so apparently with the acquiescence of the rest. Not one word of protest against the outrage involved in their presence has been uttered so far as I know, by the other members of the board. And a formal pronouncement signed by the president of the seminary and the president of the board actually commends the 33 members of the board as men who have the confidence of the church. Surely it is quite clear in view of that pronouncement, as well as in view of the personnel of the board, that under such a governing body, Princeton Seminary is lost to the evangelical cause. At first, it might seem to be a great calamity, and sad are the hearts of those Christian men and women throughout the world who love the gospel that the old Princeton proclaimed. We cannot fully understand the ways of God in permitting so great a wrong. Yet good may come even out of a a thing so evil as that. Perhaps the evangelical people in the Presbyterian Church were too contented, too confident in material resources. Perhaps God has taken away worldly props in in order that we may rely more fully upon him. Perhaps the pathway of sacrifice may prove to be the pathway of power. Now, I've already read some of that paragraph, some of that quotation earlier when we talked about Machen's understanding of the relationship between Christ and culture and how events may have changed 
um, Machen for being more of an optimist about the, the, the spreading of the kingdom of God through Western civilization and to be much more pessimistic about where things were, were going. But I think it's still interesting to think about the kind of um, tyranny that Machen thought was going on in the, in the United States under these various progressive reforms. Um, also, he's very much opposing a kind of tyranny within the church that took away his beloved Princeton Seminary. Um, so on that, I will stop and maybe take one question or comment if there's any one that's burning. Yes, but It, it seems that um, on the blue laws that Nietzsche uh, makes the argument that, um, that about the commercialized Sunday that it's infringing on his rights. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's, that it's a contextual argument that he's living in the city and all this traffic and the noise and that his argument would have been different were he not to live in the city? Um, well, I, he's making the point for the good of the whole commonwealth. Um, so he may be thinking about Pittsburgh as well, at least, with, right. the, with the Stillers. Uh, the, um, I don't think it's necessarily an urban thing, though. Um, and, but I think you, you, you're on to something with his use of the word rights, and I'm not sure that that's a, that's a word that should come naturally to Christians in talking about, about the affairs of the state. But I guess it still strikes me that he is trying to make a case that this is reasonable regulation, and the majority of the people, it will hurt more than, more than the minority. But he's recognizing that it will hurt the minority as well. So in a democracy, somebody has to suffer. And I mean, it's one of the great dilemmas of democratic rule, which is what happens to the minority, and in the interest of protecting the minority, do you then hurt the majority? I mean, somebody loses in any contested battle. Um, it, it just seems in an agrarian society, you can kind of you know, shut out more of right, right. influence. No, that's, I mean, that's an interesting point. And he was an urban man his whole life, really. I mean, Princeton wasn't real urban. but All right, let's uh, close in prayer. This has been another edition of Historia Ecclesia. To read more from Daryl Hart, please visit oldlife.org. To hear more of our programs or to read more from us, please visit reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about our other programs and news about everything that we're up to. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org, Twitter us at reformedforum, or you can send your mail to P.O. Box 27422. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.